Wow. Okay. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Yes, I was choking on it. I was choking on the heat or something, I guess, outside. I don't know. It's not hot in here, though. No, it's not. It's we got nice the temperature crack, crack, cranked down. This office is like one room, and it has its own air conditioner. If you want to get cooled off in a hurry, yes. this is the room to come to to do it. Yes, it Which really works is. for me. So welcome on this Monday, yes. this hot Monday, to uh, back to our Bible study of Isaiah that we're in right now, right? We sure are. And we're in chapter 45, see? Yes. It didn't take that long to get to 45. No. 45, verse 15. That's where we're going to start, <laughs> 45, 15. Just kind of just kinda ease our way back in. So, Miss Patty. Yes. What's up? Not much. <laughs> we did go see uh, Jurassic Park, mm -hmm. and it was fun. Very noisy, um, but that was a lot of fun. Meaning loud. The Meaning loud. A lot, oh, lot yeah. of dinosaurs yep. munching, munching people, people and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it was entertaining. You know, it was like entertaining. a popcorn movie. Why, I mean, I'm not looking for any life-changing cinematic experience no. there. I'm just just to kind of see stuff on that giant screen. That's right. And in two weeks, um, that... Elvis movie is starting and and honestly guys I have never been a big Elvis fan but that movie looks so good it looks it's like looks beautiful it it's a it, Baz Luhrmann movie who yes. made Moulin Rouge which I know that you really I did love like. it's just it's just such a beautiful over the top the colors and everything it just looks so pretty so I'm excited about that Good. And the two times we've been to the movies lately, it's been crowded. It's been busy. We've seen two yeah. big movies, Top Gun and Jurassic Park. And we bought the Jurassic Park tickets. We we went with the grandkids and Matt and stuff, and we bought them um, like I think I bought them like four days in advance, maybe five days, and I still couldn't get the seat I went there to get. We really? had to make a little bit of a change, so right. it, which is fine with me. Yes, I, I'm just glad to see that they're they're getting people to come back to the movies because they're and fun. We love. I remember I've always been a giant movie fan, and so has Scott. And we both can remember standing outside of theaters on a Friday night, the grand opening of a movie, waiting out there for an hour in the heat to get a good seat. And now... I wouldn't do that now, though. No, I wouldn't either. You just go <laughs> online. You got, you know, you're paying for yeah, it in advance, but yeah, you got no, your I, seat, which is I'm awesome. totally down with a new way. A new way. <laughs> what would I wait in line in the heat? For an hour. Well, well, I don't know what that would be. It would be water if you had none. That's about it. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Let's so pray. We're, oh, glad go ahead. we're glad you're here with us today as we uh, continue on here in Isaiah and just hoping everybody's having a good day and, and is somewhere cool and inside in air conditioning. Yeah. It, it, this is kind of like Texas winter, you know, when I used to live up north for a long, for a while, pretty good while. And in the, there were times in the winter where you just basically stayed inside because it was miserable, cold, miserably cold and icy and snowy out and everything. So that's this is this time of year for us. Because yep. there isn't much out there that I want to go experience in the heat. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. So okay, good let's do this. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful. We're grateful for a for really a beautiful day, a hot day, but... but um, uh, at least our power's on, and I hope everybody, I guess everybody is listening's power is, is on, and we're grateful for that. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit, will, as we make our way through Isaiah, will help us connect with these ancient words, these, these that come to us from, you know, two and a half millennia ago. Help us to hear in them 
uh, relevance um, even for our world today. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I was looking at the comments there, and Andy has... I think he means right on time. He has R period, O period, T period, right on time. Oh, but 45. I wonder what that means. Maybe maybe chapter? 45? 45. It, it is 15. Really, 45 or not, verse 15. We are 15. up to 45, yeah. 45, 15. Yep, yep. So... All righty, friends, let's see. Let me put some context around where we are. We're in a section of Isaiah, which is very much about choices. The Israelites, the Jews, have been exiled to Babylon. And in this section, God is basically telling them that they have a choice to make. They can either trust in God or they can go the Babylonian way, right? So these are these are the two choices. And as I often teach from pretty much across scripture, these choices are pretty stark. It's A or B, there's not really any middle ground. There's no, well, sort of. Nope, light and darkness, A and B, the Babylonians or God, um, not both. There's no way to put those two things together. And indeed, that is what the book of Daniel is all about. The book of Daniel is addressing the question of whether Daniel and his friends, exiled to Babylonia, will be true to God or will they just kind of go along to get along with the Babylonians? Um, and that that that's what the book of Daniel is about. And the book of Daniel is meant to encourage um uh, the Jews to stay to stay true to God, and as well, what I love about this section of Isaiah is is that the 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 writer, the prophet, talks a lot about who God is. God talks a lot about who God is, and why, and why we should choose God. Why any other choice? ends in darkness and death, really. So, anyway, for chapter 45 is where we are. We just we just kind of did a couple verses here. Um, uh, I think we last week we maybe we got up to 17, but let's go back to chapter 45, verse 15. So, so the prophet is speaking, and the prophet is saying, Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself the God and Savior of Israel. And what does he mean about hiding himself? Hide, God hiding himself? Well, because they were exiled. Where have, it's a natural question. Where is God in all of this? Um, lots of times people forget that the prophets are not only bringing God's word, they are expressing the anxieties, the hopes, the fears of the people. Um, I've heard the Bible described, you know, described as the Word of God and the people's spiritual journal of their journey with God, and that's really that's really right. That the, both of those things go on at the same time in the pages of Scripture. Um, so, okay, Robin Pratt, we did not need to hear that. I just saw your <laughs> comment come up. <laughs> just want you to know. 
brace yourselves for when you get home because it is there is it's it's hot here it's hot here it's hot here it's going to be approaching twice what it is in in edinburgh so uh, take that for what you will so <laughs> verse 15 truly you are a god who has been hiding himself the god and savior the god and savior of israel that word Savior is grounded in what? That word Savior is grounded in the Exodus. That is the great salvation story in the Hebrew Scriptures. The God and Savior of Israel. All the makers of idols, the prophet says, will be put to shame and disgrace. They will go off into disgrace together. Dot, dot, dot. So make your choice. Make your choice. Verse 17. But Israel will be saved by Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Right? That's a salvation. Well, I guess kind of what it says. Salvation without end. That's a salvation into eternity. You will never be put to shame or disgrace to ages everlasting. Be God's people. Return to God. Yes, it's been tough. And yes, you've been exiled. And yes, you've been in jail for your sins. And we talked all about that in the early chapters of Isaiah. But just trust in God. So in verse 18, we're going to um, hear about who God is. For this is what Yahweh says. That's sort of a standard prophet way of introducing the word of God. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Now, some of this may ring in your ear like, didn't we just hear that last week? And you did. It, it is, it, there, there, there's some repetition in these oracles, these messages. And, you know... I kind of think it's because it, these are things that we probably need to hear more than once. Now, it's certainly true with my kids. They need to hear me more than once. And I'm sure my parents said the same thing. But notice, you know, it's, it's wonderful, a great and glorious thing to get totally wrapped up in the beauty of the earth. And the beauty of the earth and the majesty of the earth and the natural world the, and, and, to, and, to, and to let it be a signpost for you to God. But the earth was not made to be uninhabited by people. It was made to be inhabited. I just thought of Simon, Simon Chance. He's a theologian. A little short sentence which is stuck in my mind for a long time now. God made the world in order to make the church, in order to make a people whom God could love and who would love God. I think that's a really foundational understanding to bring to your reading of Scripture. He, God, did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. That's a formulation which is used, I counted three times, I think, in chapter 45. I am Yahweh and there is no other. There is no other. <laughs> there is no other. We want to be 
respectful of people who have different religious reviews, but we can't let that respectfulness turn into a belief that they're all the same. Because there is not. There is one God who revealed himself to Abraham, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then fully revealed himself in his son, in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. That is the Christian claim. It is the Christian proclamation. Um, the singleness of God is what made the Jews monotheistic. It made them different and weird in their world. But they clung to it. In many ways, it made them a people. Remember what Ruth says to Naomi. I'll go with you. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And that God, come, they come to understand that they don't just have the best God of all the gods on offer in the ancient world. They have the only God. And there's so much in this section about that because it's written for a world in which the Jews are living amongst pagans who have a very full pantheon of gods and goddesses. So when we come to our world today, it presents a challenge because my neighbors, I'm just called my neighbors who aren't, who aren't religious, let me put it that way, or Christian, they don't have in their heads a pantheon of pagan gods and goddesses that they worship, but they still have idols. It's inescapable. We, the only question is what we worship or who we worship. It's just, it's just really how we are made. And for many people in our time, it is themselves, if they're honest. If they're honest, and you hear them talk about it, honestly, it's themselves. Verse 19. Let me go back at the phrase before. He says, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, Seek me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak the truth. I declare what is right. There's no way to truly know what is ultimately right apart from God. Because apart from God, who is outside humanity, it all issues of rightness all become they become battles of power. What makes my opinion better than Patty's, my assessment of right, better than Patty's or anybody else here? There is no way to resolve all of that unless God is there to, to help us understand what is right, independent of ourselves, independent of humanity. Um, a phrase that you sometimes will hear, I think, is natural law. is a way to, to talk about that a little bit. I think I have that right. Um, but just a, a, a Bible verse you need to circle and come back to once in a while lies at the end of the book of Judges. When it says, you know, that every, it, they're describing the, the, the state of virtual, of chaos 
in Israel. Their, their, their abandonment of God. And it says everybody did what was right in their own eyes. At the end of that lies darkness and destruction. We are God has revealed to us and has shown us what is right. And we could have whole Bible lessons about that, and we will get into some of that even here, I'm sure, in Isaiah. But it is God who declares what is right. So, any thoughts or questions so far? No, pretty quiet over here. Okay. All right, so. Now the prophet is speaking again. Gather together and come. Assemble you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be presented. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, Yahweh? So obviously I was wrong a moment ago. It's God is still speaking. There is no God apart from me. Boom, boom, boom. Coming at us from 2,500 years ago, there is no God apart from me. And part of what we are called to do as humans is come to know our Creator. And we come to know God only because God reveals himself to us. It might be in what he has created. It might be in what he has done. It might be in what God has said. But God has revealed himself to, it, to us, ultimately, in the pages of Scripture. Yes, in what he did, but the only way we can access any of that is through the pages of Scripture. That's the connection there. So was it not I, Yahweh, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God, a righteous Savior, there is none but me. So clearly, 2,500 years ago, the prophet and God understand that this is a huge issue for the Jews. Why is this so repetitive? Why is God constantly hammering this home? Because the people are attracted to these pagan gods and goddesses whom they live among. And there are lots of, you know, and, and we're going to talk in just a little bit. In Babylon, there were lots of festivals and lots of idols of different kinds. And the whole calendar was all built around these pagan gods and goddesses. And everybody wants to get along with their neighbors, don't they really? They do. so hard for them to say to themselves, well, okay, we'll be weird, we'll be strange, we'll live apart from everyone else. There is no God but God. That simple affirmation could come for people at a fairly high price. There is no God but God. Look what happened in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in the fiery furnace. There is no God but God. There is no God but Yahweh. 
So then God says to says, turn to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So what's on offer here? What's being offered by the creator of the cosmos to the ends of the earth, to all the peoples of the earth? Turn to me and be saved. Saved from what? Saved from death, destruction, sin. Turn to me and be saved. It's of a peace with the promise made to Abraham. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Abraham. It's of a peace with the great commission. Go make disciples of all nations. Be my witnesses, Jesus says. It's all, it all, these writings that are spread out over thousands of years, they all fit, they fit together. It, I held my fingers up like they fit together, you know, super tightly. They don't. I mean, I realize it, that they're coming from different places and different people at different times, but there is an overarching story of God's salvation. We are at 45, 22. 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. So that's everybody. For I am God and there is no other. Which means what? There is no other place to turn. All of these little idols you've got. They can't save you. And you certainly can't save yourself. That is the message for, you know, a lot of people in our world in the 21st century. No, you're, you can't save yourself. Verse 23. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. Okay, that's a famous, those are two famous lines. Um, and they're speaking here of the fact that God's work is about everybody, which we can't ever lose sight of. There may be lots of people in our world who deny God, who deny the existence of God, but Jesus died, Jesus died for them too. They may not avail themselves. They may fight God all the way to their doom and destruction in the end, but Jesus died for them too. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So turn to Romans 14 verse 10 and we'll see a place where Paul quotes this very line from Isaiah. He uses it differently, but he uses it. 14 Romans 14 10. Look at that. I put the verse in. Romans 14.10. It's just helpful. You know, I have a... I pulled off my shelf last week um, a cross-reference Bible. It has 100,000 cross-references in it. It's what the whole thing is built to be. 100,000 cross-references in it. 
because the writers across Scripture, all the late, the late, all the one, they all use what came before. I guess is how I should put. It. They all use what came before. I'm teaching the Book of Revelation right now on Sunday mornings in a kind of a helicopter four-week overview. Utterly dependent upon the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, phrase after phrase, sentence after sentence, image after image, coming out of the Hebrew Scriptures, because there is one God who has had one plan for salvation. Um, going back to Genesis 12, 3. So, look at Romans chapter 14, verse 10. And what Paul is talking about, okay, context. In Rome, there are Jewish Christians and there are Gentile Christians. And the Jewish Christians have been away for a while because the Roman emperor kicked all the Jews out in 49 AD and swept up in that were the Jewish Christians because the Romans, how, how are they going to know the difference? So all the Jews, all the Jewish Christians left Rome, um, including, for example, two people whose names you might know, Priscilla and her husband Aquila, leaving the Gentile Christians in charge in the house churches in Rome. But now that emperor has died, and so the Jewish Christians are returning, and the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians aren't getting along. So Paul talks in this letter to the Romans about the need for unity. And he speaks to a common human problem, the quickness with which we turn to judging others. And so chapter 14, verse 10, you then... <laughs> Why do you judge your brother or sister? This is in, this is in-house. This is intramural. Why do you judge your brothers or your brother or sister? Dot 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 in Christ, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, "As surely as I live," says the Lord, "every knee will be." Every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. He's just reminding them, using Isaiah's, uh, the, these, the sentence from Isaiah, to remind them that we are all going to stand before God. That, that, that God's work um, encompasses the Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians, and they ought not to be so fast to judge each other. And Josie offers up Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. Rightly so. So, see, let's go to Philippians, as long as we're bouncing around here. In one of the, my favorite passages, of course, in Scripture, go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. I think Arthur used this in his sermon on Sunday. If you're a preacher, it's kind of hard to avoid coming back to Philippians 2. And um, while you're going there, Paul is urging the Philippian Christians to be of the same mindset, to put the interests of others ahead of their own, to set aside their selfish ambitions, to have the same mind that is in Christ. Right? And then in verse 
verse 6. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. That's Jesus. By taking on the very nature of a servant, a slave, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, remember, therefore is always important. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, acknowledge, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Isaiah, Philippians, Romans, we could find more of them around Scripture. Just sort of helping us grasp the larger, the larger, um, God's larger purposes. It's so easy to get lost in the minutia of of everyday life it just it, it is so we'll find now find your way back to isaiah 20 isaiah 45 verse 24 isaiah 45 verse 24 i'm gonna finish my coffee here So this is God speaking. 24. They will say of me, in Yahweh alone are deliverance and strength, because it's true. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. You can see why, why Paul used the words just a verse above in talking about um, the fact that the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians would both come before the judgment seat, right? Verse 25. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in Yahweh and will make their boast in him. Another phrase Paul uses a lot, because I'm teaching 1 Corinthians right now, and one of the things he cautions about is, you know, don't boast in yourself, boast in God. It is about what God has done for you. It is about what God is doing for us all. Um, and the deliverance that we all need, we may not all even seek it, but we need it. <laughs> There's lots of times we need things and we don't even know we need them. But we all, we all need this because without God's deliverance, what awaits is death, darkness, the end, right? So, that, my friends, is chapter 45. I do have a question for you. Sure. So, I, you know, the, a lot of what we've started talking about today was, you know, God reminding these people that he is the only God and only put their faith in him and don't worship other gods and, again, all of that kind of stuff. And we know in Jesus' times that 
It was similar to this. People were still worshiping all kinds of gods. Paul talked about it to, you know, people in Athens about, you know, their gods. You mean in the pagan world? In the pagan world, yes. yes. So we know in Jesus' time, like 500, you know, or so years after this, the ones who tried to live this out, I think, more, in their minds anyway, more effectively or whatever, would maybe be someone like the Essenes who just said, we just can't be in the middle of all of this. We need to go away somewhere else and follow God and God's word. I was just wondering if back like in this day, was there possibly like little sects of Christians that went off? Now, when I call them Christians, I'm sorry. Of course, they're Israel. Israel. Yeah, they're not Christians. They're not, yes. they're not Christians, of course. Yeah, it, but would Israel... Would they find themselves to be able to to possibly be able to do a better job of keeping God's word and keeping away from false idols and that maybe being with a different, being with like-minded people that they were not under that extreme pressure all the time. Of Among any people, there are there is diversity, right? So if we go back over the history of Israel, let's say for the 400 years prior to what we're reading about now, during the time of the kings, there were there was a variety in terms of the Israelites, of those who would stay true to God and those who would go chasing after the pagan gods and goddesses. Yes. Okay? And there's a lot of struggle around all of that because, for example, the kings of the northern kingdom called Israel generally do a terrible job of leading the people to the worship of the one true God. The kings in the south do a better job of, of that. At, at the time we're reading about here, they're all either poor, disheartened, and despairing, those who were left in Jerusalem, right. or they're in exile. And so probably the way to think about it is that in exile... What, what would happen to them? If they were going to stay true to God, they were going to have to become even more tightly knit, even more together, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And But then, as they returned to Jerusalem, filled with hope, that all the great promises are about to be delivered, and they're not, frankly, what would begin to happen. People would begin to say, well, what went wrong? What are we doing wrong? Maybe what we should do is move out by the Dead Sea and lead this a very ascetic, alone lifestyle, give up all worldly stuff in essence. And maybe that's a route that we need so that all these great promises will be kept. And so, yeah, there were some, and they were, there was a community of them at a Qumran, called the, and they were called the Essenes, and there were probably others of a similar bent. There were some who said, no, we have to keep, we have to keep God's word. We have to keep, you know, this covenant we made with God. And so we need to make sure that we obey God's law to the nth degree as we understand it and as we are now interpreting it. And those are the Pharisees. 
You see, so these different sects within Judaism arise, and in, a way to understand them is that they're all trying to they're all trying to answer the question. We can read the promises in Isaiah, and and we thought they would all be waiting for us when we got back here, and they're really not. You know. Um, this, I think, in Isaiah is what God's asking him to do is, is pretty straightforward. To stay true to God. That's the book of Daniel. Stay true to God. Stay true to God. Stay true to God. Stand up to the pressures. And God will be true to you. So, I don't know. That's the best help I can be, Patty. Okay. All right. Okay, so now we're going to come to chapter 46 and 47, which are kind of a unit. And some context is helpful because we're going to focus on the Babylonians whom God is going to mock. First of all, we don't even like mocking very much, do we, honey? No. No, we don't like mocking very much. It, it's, it seems sort of disrespectful it and does. we all try to get along together in a very pluralistic world. Um, but I don't know how much, given the nature of this emergency, God is too focused on that. He is going to mock the Babylonians. He's going to mock their religious beliefs and their religious practices here. Um, and let's talk about those for a second. In... Babylon, there was, they had their own creation story in a long poem called the Enuma Elish. And some of you may have heard of the Enuma Elish. And it tells the story, as most of these ancient creation stories do, that are they're very different from the story in, in Genesis, of struggles and fights between gods and between generations um, and out of which emerges the earth and people and, and so forth. And the Enuma Elish is, is kind of like that. And for the Babylonians, the God who emerges at the top of the heap is a God called Marduk, or Maraduk, or Moratuk. We're not sure how it was pronounced. But he is the, he is the top um, the, the top god in that Babylonian pantheon. And of course, like the other pagan pantheons, there are other gods and goddesses. Marduk has a son named... We'll call, it, use him, we'll call him Nebo, because I think that's how it's done here. And those beliefs go back to the time of Abraham. Okay? So over the centuries between Abraham and uh, what we're reading now in Isaiah, which is more than a thousand years, um, Marduk changes and other gods are taken up into Marduk and Marduk becomes the, 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 this even more all-powerful god in, the, in this Babylonian pantheon and also picks up another name. B-E-L, Bell. And if you know your books, the Apocrypha, you know that there's a story 
about Bell and the Dragon and stuff. So, and Bell is basically Marduk syncretized other things added to Marduk over the time, but but that's that's who it is. And and there was a, a festival every year around Marduk, around Bell, and in this festival, the statue of Marduk was taken from the statue's normal temple and resting place to go visit the sanctuary and resting place of his son, Nebo. And here is, somebody made a drawing here of this parade and with bands and people shouting and hollering, carrying this, you know, statue of, they're carrying Marduk because he doesn't fly. They're carrying Marduk to the sanctuary of his son Nebo. And I think the festival is called A-K-I-T-A, Akita, I think. And it still happens today. It's been reshaped. But among certain Assyrian Christians and people who trace their roots back to these folks, they still practice some of these religious practices. And the focus is very much on these idols, these statues. And that is what God is going to, to mock. So, that's why I gave you this little introduction to that. Tell me it was terribly interesting, Patty. It was very interesting. Okay, well. I love the little picture, too. <laughs> you Little kids and stuff going along there. Yeah. Kind of conveys the idea, right? Yes. Right, they're just carrying it along. So, look at chapters 46, verse 1. Well, I get a sip of water. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. They're statues. They're just statues. How do you get a statue from one place to another? You put it on people's backs or oxen backs or however because they're heavy. They're not going to fly there. They're not going to dematerialize and rematerialize there. They're just statues of wood and stone. So 46 verse 1. Bell bows down. Nebo <coughs> stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome. They're a burden for the weary. See, that's that's a um, that's like a little metaphor right there. I can remember years ago. Some of you may remember Tamara Hansen. Tamara um, passed away a long time ago. Now she was she was a St. Andrew member, and she contracted a cancer and passed away. But I always remember her talking to me about a trip she made to India, and. And she would see some of these parades that I think you've probably seen pictures of, of various idols being carried and they're covered in flowers and the crowds are... And she said to me, Scott, these people carry such a burden. They're so afraid of doing something wrong or offending one of these gods or goddesses. Um, you get that flavor no matter where you go in reading about the pagan world. Um, a way to view life 
in the Greco-Roman world was what you wanted to do in life was do everything you can to avoid attracting the attention of any of the gods or goddesses because it's probably not going to work out well. And and I just remember using those words about being a burden and so forth. And here God is. These images, the belief in these in these hunks of stone and wood that are multiplied all over the land in Babylon, they're burdensome. They're a burden for those who are already weary because life is hard. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, with you I have upheld since your birth, you whom I have upheld since your birth, and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you, I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. With whom will you compare me, God says, or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god. And they bow down and worship it. Dot, dot, dot. How ridiculous. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. Why? Can't it move? Obviously, we know why. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. Indeed, 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 they're just inanimate hunks of stone upon which people focus their spiritual yearnings, which all humans share. Yeah, see, so Josie writes that my, her Bible says idols must be carried by the worshipers, but God always carried the people and will yet carry and save them. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what God is saying here. It's And don't confuse this with the Ark of the Covenant. When they carried the Ark of the Covenant from one place to another, they didn't think they were carrying God. It's a special box, granted. The mercy seat is a special deal, granted. But God could not be contained. God had made it quite clear they would have no idols. They couldn't fashion anything, the Jews. Jews couldn't fashion anything and imagine they, that they had fashioned the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the cosmos. They had to stay a thousand miles away from all of that. <laughs> so God says to them in verse eight, remember this, keep it in mind, Take it to heart, you rebels. You rebels, you see? What happens in the Garden of Eden? It's rebellion. Rebellion is a, is a perfect word for what happens. It's what, it, rebellion against God is the perfect way to think about what we mean by original sin. It's manifested in lots of ways, but it begins with our rebellion against God. That's what Adam and Eve do. They rebel against God. There's one thing God told them not to do and they have to do it. 
Verse 9. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. It's almost like... <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't know sometimes why the thoughts come into my head that do. This is almost like vacation Bible school. Right? God feels like he has to address the Israelites like they were preschoolers in Bible school. And he's given them this simple thing. I am God and there is no other. And they're going to say it over and over and over and over and over again until they finally get it. Yeah, maybe that is how God feels about it with them then because they had been rebellious for so long it had been their ruin ending in the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and ending in the Babylonian exile I am God there is no other I am God there is none like me so what could be more important in our lives than coming to know God I don't know what that would be. Verse 10. I, God, make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times what is still to come. I say, quote, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God's purposes will not be thwarted. And theologians will talk a long time about taking various parts of scripture and trying to understand how God does this. And you know, like on Twitter, there's all these long discussions. About, well, I guess they're not that long because you can't have that many characters. But they, they are kind of long discussions about, you know, this and that. But in the end, you see, God knows where God is taking us. Revelation 21 and 22, Isaiah 65 and 66. God knows where God is taking us. Even if we can't see the path. Even if the path is that, even if there's more than one way the path can take, God is going to bring us to the goal. Why? Because that is, because that's God. My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. God says. From the east, I summon a bird of prey; from a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. So now we have to go back last week. Who do we think this is? Who's the man from the east? What was that? Cyrus. You got it, Patty. That was King Cyrus, whom the king of the Persians, whom God is going to raise up, right? Yes. To overrun the Babylonians and then allow the Jews who have been living in exile for 50 years to begin, and sometimes as many as 70 or 80 years, to begin to return home. Because remember the Cyrus Cylinder? Because Cyrus is the great liberator. That's how he understood himself. What made Cyrus think he was the great liberator? The one who, who would return peoples, conquer peoples to their homelands. I would suggest that it might well have been God. <laughs> Who showed, who turned on that light bulb for Cyrus, right? Because God says, I have my purposes. 
And this man from a far off land is the man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. It doesn't mean we always understand how God's plan is going to work out, when God's plan is going to work out. I've told you before that you can read the book of Romans as a defense of God's righteousness because it had been 500 years since they had returned to Jerusalem. And now the Romans were in charge and, and Jews were dying at the hands of the Romans. Was God never going to keep his promises? It's an understandable question. Yet the scroll of Isaiah says, what I have said, I'm going to bring it about. What I plan, I'm going to do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted. <laughs> you who are now far from my righteousness, I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away. And my salvation will not be delayed. Now this, I will I'll finish the verse. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. So verse 13 gets a lot of ink. It gets a lot of ink. Well, what does God mean here? I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away. My salvation will not be delayed. I think you can see in it the larger work of God, but I, I think it's a pretty immediate point being made. Because through Jeremiah, God had promised that he was going to bring his people back to Jerusalem. God had made a promise. And the right thing to do when you make a promise is to keep that promise. And now the keeping of that promise of the Jews beginning to return to Jerusalem is not far away. And their salvation in the sense of being freed from prison in Babylon to return to Jerusalem where they may well feel like they're under house arrest, but that's better than behind bars, will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. The time, it's, it's, it is a little bit like when Jesus says at the beginning of Mark's gospel, you know, the time was fulfilled. You know, the salvation's at hand. I'm paraphrasing. God is saying to them, yes, it's right upon us. That's, go back to Isaiah 40, a few chapters before. Make straight the ways, right? Level the mountains, raise the valleys. It's happening. And then the question is, well, what about Babylon? So we're going to talk a little bit about what's going to happen, you know, the downfall of Babylon. It doesn't matter that Babylon didn't really fall, have this huge destructive period. This is not all... I'm going to date myself. This is not a Gene Dixon exercise. Gene Dixon, when I was a boy, was this woman who would come out, look at her crystal ball, basically, and make predictions about the year ahead. And she'd make so many that guess what? 
Some would be true. Some would work out. <laughs> and that's that. That's the whole secret. you got to make lots of them. And then you can, at the end of the year, you go back and you value the ones that you got right out of the ignoring the thousand you got wrong. So I think when people come to their Bibles, they want it. They want it to kind of fit, I don't know, maybe our modern-day Western way and here this careful prediction has all got to work. The prophet is expressing the people's desire for what? For the destruction of Babylon. That's what they want to have happen. Why do they want to have it happen? Are they terrible, evil people? No. Their hearts are marked by sin, yes. But so are ours. And even though God says, vengeance is mine, we're often not satisfied with that. Patty and I just finished um, watching The Staircase on HBO, that long, there's a documentary on Netflix. The long, it's a long story about a murder trial. And, and, and the sister of the victim, after so many years, just can't, just can't bring herself to forgive and doesn't grasp, doesn't grasp that her unwillingness to forgive is, is the poison in her own heart. That's what it, she is the one being torn up. Nobody else is. She's the one being torn up by it. But she can't. That is the human heart. And the Bible speaks to that. The Bible speaks to that. The Bible speaks for that. Not because God approves of it. I'm reminding you to take <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. Patty is going to remember to take her tagamet. <laughs> Got to take it before dinner. Oh, yeah. So one more thing about this. Yes, these cities in the ancient world, particularly when they were being, well, they were personified as women. Here, Babylon is going to be personified as a woman and who is going to be mocked and tormented and stuff. And I think it is because this is an extraordinarily patriarchal world and should not in any way shape our own thinking about women or cities or any of that stuff today. You just you just have to you just have to get used to it. You have to know that this is coming to us from two and a half millennia ago. So here's what God says to Babylon. Go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne queen city of the Babylonians, no more will you be called tender or delicate. Take millstones and grind flour. You're going to work hard now. Your hands are going to be rough and calloused. Take off your veil. Good women wore veils in this world. Lift up your skirts, bare your legs Ooh. to your shame. To your shame would be the add-on to that. Wade through the streams. Your nakedness will be exposed. Your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. And you're going to say to me, well, what kind of God is this? And I'm going to tell you this is the God who allows people to express their hearts. You, there is nothing you will ever carry in your heart that God refuses to hear. 
think of God in this case, think of God as 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 the kindest, most loving person you've ever met who can take the vitriol and the poison and just let you pour it out because you have to get it out. Because that's that's in part what we need to be rescued from. Right? This this woman in, in the series we just finished, she needed to be rescued from the pain she felt over the murder of her sister after like 15 years. She needed to be rescued from that. So, Psalm 137, lay it out there. God does not approve of bashing babies' heads against rocks, but it expresses the emotions and feelings and desires of the people. And so they end up in this spiritual journal. Verse 4. Our Redeemer, Yahweh Almighty, is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence, talking to Babylon. Go into darkness, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people, and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand, and you showed them no mercy. Even on the ages, on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. You said, I am forever the eternal queen. I told you before, I think in the context of this a couple of months ago, to go on YouTube and listen to Brian, what's his name, honey, from Breaking Bad? Brian Cranston. Cranston. Read yes. Shelley, I think it's Shelley, Shelley's poem, poem Ozymandias. It's about this right here. The, Babylon, the queen, Babylon says, I am forever the eternal queen. No, no. You did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. It's just hubris. It is what it is. So now then listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. I'll never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Still speaking to, the, to, the, to Babylon and hence the Babylonians. Both of these roles will take you in a day, on a single day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. I think, do my wickedness. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. So you see how that is this perverse echoing of what God says about God. When God says, I am God and there is no other, well, that's actually how it is. When, when the Babylonians say, I am and there is none besides me, that's a lie. They're all, it's all gone. It was gone relatively soon in the big scheme of things. It was all gone. In whom can you find eternity? Only in God, certainly not in the Babylonians 
or anywhere else among the peoples of the earth, but in God the Creator. You know, a place where the Babylonians really prided themselves on their, it was all on their knowledge of the stars and the planets and their movement. That's the three magi are probably Babylonians, um, astrologers of some, some stripe. That was where they felt they got a lot of their knowledge in from. And of course, that was all really nothing. That's just a movement of stars and planets we now know that we can trace using um, telescopes and computers and so forth. That's no way to, to, to ground your wisdom and knowledge. Instead, how, do we, how are we to ground our wisdom and our knowledge? In God. So in verse 10, he, God says to the Babylonians, in essence, you have trusted in your wickedness and have said no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none beside you. Dot, dot, dot. You couldn't be more wrong. Disaster is going to come upon you and you won't know how to conjure it away. A calamity is going to fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. There isn't enough money. For me, this echoes the four horsemen of the apocalypse. What, you really think you're going to have enough money? We don't even know what to do about this new little bout of inflation we're having. What, are we going to have enough money or enough of whatever to ward off whatever might befall us? Heck not. <laughs> a, catastrophe, a catastrophe you cannot see will suddenly come upon you. That is the way of the world. Empires come and go. We don't like to think it, but they do. They come and go. So God says, all right, keep on then with your magic spells and with your many sorceries which you have labored at since childhood. Ha! Huh. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. All the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. Ah, surely they're like stubble. The fire's going to burn them up. They can't save themselves from the power of the flame. These are not coals for warmth. This is not a fire to sit by. That is all they are to you. Those you have dealt with and labored with since childhood. All of them, all of these wise people, wise in their astrological ways, wise in their conjuring, wise in their special poses, wise in all of their rituals with all the idols and pagans and the rest of it, and, and all of them go on and on and on and on in their error. There is not one of them, there is not one that can save you. the truth, isn't it? So, when we come back next week, we're going to turn to chapter 48. Because chapter 46 and 47 are, is this block about 
sort of focused on Babylon. And now we're going to come to Israel. And we are getting closer and closer to meeting the servant. The servant. And we'll ask the question, well, who is this servant? And is the servant the prophet? Is the servant Israel? And you and I will ask the question, without a doubt, is the servant truly, in the end, Jesus? So, in the chapters we're coming to, over the next, I'd say, two or three weeks, I hope you'll be here, because they are some of the most, probably the most important pieces of Isaiah in terms of shaping our understanding of, of Jesus Christ. So, hello, Patty. Hello. Gonna move over. <laughs> All right. You know, it's interesting because yesterday when you were doing our big class, you were talking about the horror of Babylon. Yeah, because see, Babylon becomes this everlasting bad guy. Yeah. Right? Yes. Kind of like what we do in our movies with the Nazis, right? Yes. When you need a bad guy, when the when the movies need a bad guy, it's either Nazis or a modern-day Western corporation. One of the two yes. they use, right? <laughs> so, but for, for the Jews, it was always Babylon because they were the ones who took, who destroyed Rome and worse, destroyed God's temple, destroyed the Ark of the Covenant, and took them all off into exile. Dispersed yep. them all. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Okay. Okay. I wish we would have ended on a lighter note. <laughs> it's okay. We <laughs> ended where we ended. Sometimes. Ended where right. we ended. Well, we're sure glad that everybody um, that was with us today was here. We know that um, hopefully next week we have a bunch of people that have been away in these two fabulous um, travel um, trips the travel ministry has been on that folks will be back. We know a bunch of people are flying back today and some more on Wednesday and so that will all be great. Just, yes. If you think about it in your prayers tonight, just pray that everybody gets home safe and sound too. Absolutely. From, this, um, from their ministry trips. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. And we thank you, God, for this group as we come together every Monday, God, to study your word. We pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would lift all the joys and the concerns from our hearts up to you, Lord, right now. I know in our group we have many. We have many. We pray, God, that you would continue to hold this group together. We pray, God, that you'd watch over and take care of us and our families and our friends. And, Lord, we pray for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives every day. Hold us close, Lord. We lift up all these prayers, and we pray them all in the great and glorious name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Bye, everybody. Adios. See some of you tomorrow. Stay cool. <laughs> 12 o'clock in person <laughs> yeah. or online. Either one. We'd either love one. to have you there. Bye. Bring friends and family. Yes. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.